Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you. Uh, you know, one of the really cool things about Star Wars is that it appeals to so many different generations. Uh, my parents watched Star Wars. They introduced it to me as a kid, and now uh, we have introduced our kids to the Star Wars franchise, and they love it. In fact, my oldest son, Caleb, uh, drove up with me this weekend, and he had downloaded some new Star Wars uh, animated shows on his tablet that he watched in the car on the way up here. Now, that clip is from one of the prequels, uh, episodes one, two, and three, and if we're being real, the prequels are kind of a letdown. And episode one in particular, that one, The Phantom Menace, critics and audiences universally agree it is the worst Star Wars film. And you're probably thinking, well, why in the world did you show us a clip from it? Well, here's why. The dialogue in that scene contains an incredible truth that I want us to unpack together today. A while back, I read a fascinating research study, study done by Vicki Medvek, who is a research professor at Northwestern University. She studied Olympic medalists, and she discovered that bronze medalists were happier than silver medalists. And here's why. Medvek found that silver medalists were so focused on how close they came to winning gold that they weren't satisfied with the result. On the other hand, bronze medalists they focused on how close they were to not getting a medal at all, so they were happy just to have a spot on the podium. And I think that study reveals a fascinating facet of human nature. Your focus determines your reality. How we feel isn't determined by our objective circumstances. If that were the case, then silver medalists would be happier than bronze medalists because they had an objectively better result. But how we feel isn't determined by our objective circumstances. How we feel is determined by our subjective focus. Here's another way of saying that. Your internal attitudes are more important than your external circumstances. The English poet John Milton said it best. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven out of hell, a hell of heaven. That's so true, isn't it? All of us, we know people who can find something good to focus on, even in the worst of circumstances. And at the same time, all of us, we know people who can find something bad to focus on, even in the best of circumstances. So there's a universal principle that I want to share with you right out the gate this morning. And it's this. We tend to see what we're looking for. We tend to see what we're looking for. I think there are basically two types of people in this world. Complainers and worshipers. Complainers can always find something to complain about, and worshipers can always find something to praise God about. Now listen really carefully to what I'm going to say. Every one of us, we develop hypotheses about everything all the time. And then we look for evidence to support our hypotheses, and we ignore any evidence to the contrary. For example, if you decide that you don't like someone, then all you will notice is everything that's wrong with that person. The way they look, how they dress, the things they say, the things that they like. All the while, you will ignore anything about them that you could possibly like. Now, the flip side is also true. 
If you are head over heels in love with someone, then all you focus on are those things that you love about them. We call it the honeymoon stage. We see what we're looking for. You say, well, what in the world does that have to do with worship? Well, a worshiper makes a predecision to look for something to praise God about, even in the direst of circumstances. And Acts chapter 16 is exhibit A. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are sitting in a prison cell in the city of Philippi. I encourage you to read the entire chapter for yourself, but I just kind of want to set the scene for you. The book of Acts details the birth of the church. It's a history of the early Christian movement. Acts chapter 1 begins with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, ascending into heaven. And he tells his disciples before he leaves, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then the next chapter, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God falls upon the people. And they are given power to be the witnesses for Christ. 3,000 people are baptized and added to the church that day. And from there, the church begins to expand and grow. There's a guy by the name of Paul. Paul is his Greek name. Saul is his Hebrew name. And he is a devout Jew. He is a faithful, loyal Jew. And he doesn't like this new Christian movement. He thinks these Christians are betraying their Jewish heritage. In fact, he's a part of a Jewish sect called the Pharisees. And he becomes a persecutor of the church. In Acts chapter 9, he is on his way to persecute and murder Christians when he is struck down by a blinding light on the road to Damascus. And the risen Lord Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he goes on to tell him a couple of things. One, he says, you will suffer greatly for my name. But he also tells him, you will be a light to the Gentiles. And Paul goes from being a murderer of Christians to the greatest missionary the world has ever known. Paul will dedicate the rest of his life to spreading the gospel message, planting churches, encouraging believers. He takes three recorded missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire, and in Acts chapter 16, he's on his second missionary journey. He and his companion Silas are in the city of Philippi, which is modern-day Greece. And while they're there, Paul casts out a demon out of a fortune teller. Well, as you can imagine... Her master isn't very pleased by this outcome because now she can no longer predict the future and he has no means of making money anymore, so he has Paul and Silas arrested. And with that, we're ready to read in Acts 16, 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and had them fasten their feet in the stocks. Now, I think we read a story like this, and it's really hard, it's really tough to put ourselves in their shoes. Like, I've had some bad days before. I know you've had some bad days before, but but nothing like this. As a kid, I used to read a book, It was called Alexander 
and the horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day? Well, this is Paul and Silas and the horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day. If I'm Paul or Silas, I, I am emotionally and physically and spiritually spent I am completely and utterly exhausted. I am drained to the last drop. I've got nothing left to give. Their backs are bleeding from their beating. They are black and blue all over. And you just got to know they had to be ticked off. Like, I've never had a mob form against me before, but, but I know that that's just got to set you off emotionally. And to top it all off, they are put in the maximum security cell in stocks. I'm sorry, it doesn't get much worse than that. And that's why this next verse is so amazing to me. Acts 16.25, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were complaining about their circumstances. That's not what it says. It says, Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Let me share with you something that I've learned from personal experience. When I get into an emotional or a uh, spiritual slump, it's usually because I've zoomed in on a problem. I'm focusing and fixating on something that's wrong. I'm focused on the wrong thing. And nine times out of ten, the solution is zooming out to get some perspective. That happened to me in just the last couple of weeks. As a lot of you know, we've been uh, searching uh, frenetically to, to find a house here in Wabash. And this has really been going on for the last several months. Actually, since, since February, we, we first started looking. And at the beginning, it was, it was pretty carefree. Just kind of checking and seeing what was out there. But I noticed that, that as the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months, that the pressure began to build and, and the stress began to sink in. And we would make some offers on some homes and one would fall through and then we would get outbid and it just seemed like we were running into dead end after dead end and I just got so frustrated. And to be honest, I, I zoomed in on finding a house so much that I completely missed what God was up to. I, I completely... Uh, stopped focusing on, on what God was doing and what God was working that, that I just fixated on this small little problem. And so about a week and a half ago, I was praying with Tara and, and I just prayed. I, I said, God, just give me a new perspective. Give me a fresh perspective. And I thank God for, for bringing us here to Wabash and bringing us here to, to Bachelor Creek. And I praised him for his guiding hand in this journey and how we have just seen him provide and we've seen him answer prayer time and time again. And do you know what happened? I came to the realization that because God has brought us this far, he wasn't going to abandon us now. I came to the realization that, that even if we didn't find a house right away, it wasn't the end of the world. We had all sorts of, of options. We had family to stay with. There were people who were so generous and said they would open up their house for us. Like, we were going to be okay. We were going to be provided for. And this new perspective helped me to, to realize that, you know what, we're not alone in this. Like, if you're in real estate, you know the housing market's out of control right now. Like, there is such a, a high demand and the supply is, is low and things are just kind of crazy. 
There's so many people across our country right now that are in the same spot as us. And so what I did is I zoomed out and I came to the realization that God's timing is perfect and waiting isn't bad because in our waiting, we are caused to, to, to trust in God in deeper ways. I was able to realize that, that, that God has brought us to a new loving church family and, and we have this incredible opportunity to, to, to extend God's kingdom in this community. We are surrounded with an incredible team of people. Things are good. Things are good. See, sometimes you have to zoom out and you gotta look at the big picture. That's what the following college student did in writing this letter. She wrote, Dear Mom and Dad, I have so much to tell you. Because of the fire in my dorm set off by student riots, I experienced temporary lung damage and had to go to the hospital. While I was there, I fell in love with a nurse assistant, and we've moved in together. I dropped out of school when I found out I was pregnant, and he got fired because of his drinking, so we're going to move to Alaska where we might get married after the birth of our baby. Signed, your loving daughter. P.S. None of this is true, but I did fail my chemistry class, and I wanted to keep it in perspective. <laughs> Sometimes you have to zoom out and see the big picture. You, you fail a chemistry and exam, and it feels like it's the end of the world, but, but it's not. So here's the question. How do we zoom out? Let me give you a one-word answer. Worship. Worshiping is taking our eyes off of our external circumstances and focusing on God. We stop focusing on what's wrong about us or what's wrong with our circumstances, and we start focusing on what's right about God. Paul and Silas, they, they could have zoomed in, and they could have complained about their circumstances. They could have said, God, we cast out a demon, and this is what we get. God, we're on a missionary journey, and we are beaten and thrown in jail? Seriously? Instead of watching our backs, our backs are bleeding from a beating. I mean, they could have complained until they were blue in the face, but they made a choice to worship God in spite of their external circumstances. And here's what worship does. It restores spiritual equilibrium. It helps you regain perspective. It enables you to find something right to praise God about even when everything around you seems to be going wrong. Worshiping is zooming out and refocusing on the big picture. It's refocusing on the fact that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. It's refocusing on the fact that God loves me when I least expect it and least deserve it. It's refocusing on the fact that God's going to get me to where God wants me to go. It's refocusing on the fact that, that I have a place in heaven. I have an eternity with God to look forward to where there is no more suffering, where there is no more sorrow, where there is no more pain, where there is no more death. It's refocusing on the fundamentals of our faith. Let me tell you what happens. God restores the joy of our salvation. And we regain our spiritual equilibrium. Now, is it easy? Absolutely not. Nothing is more difficult than praising God when everything seems to be going wrong. But one of the purest forms of worship 
is praising God when you don't feel like it because it shows God that your worship is not based on circumstances, but worship is based on the character of God. And I think perhaps the best example in Scripture of this is the story of Job. Job in the Old Testament is a man who has everything. And just like this, everything is taken away from him. His family is killed and taken away. All of his livestock and, and all of his produce and everything that, that he has, all of his possessions are taken away. His health is taken away. He's covered from head to toe in, in, in painful sores. It gets so bad that his wife looks at him and says, Job, just curse God and die. But the end of the first chapter of Job simply says, but Job worshiped. He worshiped. Oliver Wendell Holmes said that there are two kinds of simplicity. Simplicity on the near side of complexity and simplicity on the far side of complexity. In the same sense, I think there is worship on the near side of suffering and worship on the far side of suffering. And worship on the far side of suffering has greater density and greater purity. It's rising above your circumstances. George Bernard Shaw said, people are always blaming their circumstances for what they are. I don't believe in circumstances. The people who get on in this world are the people who get up and look for the circumstances they want, and if they can't find them, make them. Worship is reframing our circumstances. One of my all-time favorite books is Man's Search for Meeting by Viktor Frankl. Frankel was a Holocaust survivor who wrote about his experience in a Nazi concentration camp in World War II. And in these concentration camps, everything was taken away from these prisoners. They were stripped of their clothes, their personal belongings, they, they were stripped of their pictures. Everything was taken away from them except one thing. Frankel says, Everything was taken from a, from a man, but one thing. The last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. I am absolutely convinced that the greatest and most important choice you make every day is your attitude. Your internal attitudes are more important than your external circumstances. The outcome of your life will be determined by your outlook on life. If you have a critical spirit or you have a complaining spirit, then you will complain until the day that you die. And life will get worse and worse and worse because you will have accumulated more and more negative experiences and you will die an old and bitter person. But if you have a worshipful spirit, then life gets better and better. Why? Because you accumulate positive memories. You see, at the end of the day, one way or another, your focus determines your reality. You know, I think responsibility is one dimension of the Imago Dei or the image of God. See, we have free choice. We are response-able. In other words, we have the ability to choose our response in any set of circumstances. Uh, Paul and Silas, they were sitting in a prison cell. Their bodies were literally chained. But you cannot chain the human spirit. That's what Viktor Frankl discovered in a concentration camp. That's what Paul and Silas modeled 2,000 years ago. Their bodies were chained, but their spirit soared. 
I got to tell you, this is one of the audio tracks that, that I would love to hear. I, I wish that we could listen to, to Paul and Silas singing on Spotify. I, I wish we could stream that song. I'm just going to go out on a limb here. But have you ever heard someone who can't sing, sing at the top of their lungs? You know what I'm talking about? I think there's something so pure and so innocent about that. Now, listen, I'm not suggesting that you intentionally sing out of tune, but there is something awesome about worshiping God at the top of your voices w without caring what it sounds like. And I'll just say my, my personal opinion here, okay? Th this isn't gospel truth. My personal opinion, I don't think Paul and Silas were in tune or in sync. I don't think that they would have cut it on the worship team, okay? But I think that they sang with a conviction that caused their fellow prisoners to listen. They praised God at the top of their voices, and that choice to worship set off a chain reaction. Albert Einstein said, you can't solve a problem on the level it was created. I think that problems created on a human plane are solved on a supernatural plane. Because that's what happens when we worship God. It changes the spiritual atmosphere. It charges the spiritual atmosphere. I've heard a preacher say before, you can't plan Pentecost, but if you pray for 10 days, Pentecost just might happen. See, I, I don't think that, that Paul and Silas could have planned this miraculous jailbreak. Now, to make a long story short, there's uh, an earthquake that takes place, and the, the prison doors are, are, are bust open in, in, in the jail. And, and the jailer is about ready to kill himself because all his prisoners are, have the freedom to escape, but, but, but Paul stops him and says, please, please don't harm yourself. We're all still here. No, nobody's left. And in verse 30, the jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took him and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Isn't that awesome? You can't script that. You can't plan that. See, you can't plan miracles, but when you worship God... In the worst of circumstances, you never know what's going to happen. Worship sets the stage for miracles. Worship causes spiritual earthquakes that can change the topography of your life. Worship is a shifting of the tectonic plates in your life. It may not change your circumstances, but it will change your life. And like this story, it may just change someone else's life. In fact, it may just change an entire household. Napoleon Hill said, every negative event contains within it the seed of an equal or greater benefit. I absolutely believe that. Worship is the way that we stay positive in negative circumstances. And I want you to hear me, it's not a placebo. It's not a sugar pill, it's reality. No matter how bad things get, as a follower of Christ, I have eternity in heaven to look forward to. Yeah, the struggle is real. The pain is real, but so is heaven. And the good news is, 
as if this current reality is temporary, but that reality lasts forever. The key is focusing on the right reality. I read a fascinating statistic this week. Research indicates that we talk to ourselves on an average of 50,000 times a day, okay? Now, if that's the average, I want you to, to, to tell yourself, are you, are you on top of that or are you below that? Do you have any guess on what percentage of self-talk is negative? Research indicates that about 80% of self-talk is negative. We are constantly, all the time, telling, us, telling ourselves negative things. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. And doggone it, people don't like me, right? And so here's what happens. We let what's wrong with us keep us from worshiping what's right with God. We're focused on the wrong reality. In her book, Mindfulness, Ellen Langer says that all of us have premeditated cognitive commitments. You say, Joel, that's a mouthful. What in the world does that mean? Let me give you a translation. We tend to see what we're looking for. We tend to see what we're looking for. A pessimist will always see something bad in a good situation, and an optimist will always see something good in a bad situation. The same Paul, who was sitting in a prison cell in Philippi, writes a letter to the church of Philippi. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, he gives us some priceless advice. It's a list of eight premeditative cognitive commitments. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You see, a worshiper always finds something to praise God for because he's looking for something to praise God for. Worship is a premeditated cognitive commitment based on ultimate reality. So let me give you a closing thought. The circumstances you complain about become the chains that imprison you. The circumstances you complain about become the chains that imprison you. And worship is the way out. It was worship that set Paul and Silas free physically. And it is worship that will set you free emotionally and spiritually. Worship sets off a chain reaction. The doors fly open. The chains break free. So I want to ask you this. Are there circumstances in your life that you are allowing to imprison you? Have your complaints about someone or something become chains? The challenge is stop focusing on what's wrong about you or your circumstances. Start focusing on what's right about God. So here's your assignment this week. This week, I want you to keep a gratitude journal. Every day, write down at least one thing that you're thankful for. You may not be somebody who likes to journal. This is for all of us. It's a spiritual discipline. Psalm 103 verse 2 says, Praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits. Or in the words of the hymn, count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings and see what God has done.
Your focus will determine your reality. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer or the author and perfecter of our faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus strikes at the very heart of communion. On the night before Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he gathered his disciples together in the upper room and he had a Passover meal with them. And as he took the bread and as he took the cup, he told them, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, when he was saying, when you take communion, fix your eyes on me. So at this time, I want you to get out your communion. I want you to get the bread this bread that, that represents Jesus' body that was beaten for us. And, and as you take this and, and as you consume this, I, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. Let's take this together. And after Jesus had taken the bread, he, he took the cup. The cup that represents Jesus' shed blood so that we might have forgiveness of sins, so that we might be able to have a relationship with our Creator. And I don't know about you, but when I think of, of what's on my gratitude list, I, I can't help but think that, that number one is fixing my eyes on Jesus and remembering the sacrifice that He's made for us. That's what this moment's all about. So I want you to take the cup. And as you drink this juice, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. The old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full of his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this moment. Or like Paul tells us in Philippians 4, that, that we, we think about such things. We think about heavenly things. We think about those things that are pure, those things that are admirable, those things that are lovely. All those things come from above. Those things come from you. And so right now we fix our eyes on you. As we go throughout our days and as we go throughout our weeks, we are hit with challenge upon challenge. You told us in Scripture, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart because I have overcome the world. And God, we know that when our eyes are fixed on you, when we have an attitude and a spirit of worship, we can get even through the worst days. Because we have a new perspective. We have a focus that, that my pain doesn't define me, my struggle doesn't define me, but who I am in Christ defines me. My identity is found in you, and because of that, I have heaven to look forward to. I know that my sins are forgiven, and so I can take, I can handle 
Whatever is thrown my way, because I'm not doing it alone, your spirit is within me. Lord, my prayer is for those here today who, who to be honest, their, their focus hasn't been on you. Their, their focus has been elsewhere. I pray that today would be the day that they fix their eyes upon you. And if there's anybody in this room or anybody who's listening online today who does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be that day. That they would say, I want to fix my eyes on Jesus. I want to accept him as my Lord and Savior. I want to receive forgiveness of sins. I want to receive the gift of eternal life. I want to identify with Jesus through the waters of baptism. I want my life to be changed for all eternity, just like the Philippian jailer. Because of two men who decided to worship, his life was changed, his entire family's life was changed. God, we pray that we would see changed lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.